Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Naflik. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole, and I'm broadcasting on this beautiful fall day from Milwaukee. It's been quiet on the Storytelling with Data podcast front lately because of a big life change on my side. My husband and I, uh, along with our three little kids, moved this summer from San Francisco to Milwaukee. I actually wanted to tell you a little bit about the process because this maybe isn't an obvious move. And bear with me because I think there are some learnings that we can apply from this when it comes to data visualization too. So my husband Randy and I actually spent quite a lot of time and energy trying to identify the right place to move. Uh, I think we'd recognized probably a couple years ago that there were things in San Francisco that we were ready to move on from. Right? The cost, tight spaces, the battle for getting our kids into school, and really just being in the middle of the density of the city and everything that goes along with it. Our challenge was that the next spot wasn't immediately obvious. So at one point, we stepped back and we sketched out the things that we wanted, right? the criteria that this new place would hopefully meet. There were things on our list like, you know, it needed to be somewhere where we have people, family, friends, some sort of social circle, so it wouldn't be starting from scratch. Uh, Space would be a nice thing, uh, specifically an increase in space. Uh, Our children are small, but there are three of them, and they have a ton of energy, so having space for people to spread out would be uh, a pretty awesome thing. Lower cost would, of course, be attractive. San Francisco is one of the most expensive cities in the world. And we didn't really have to be there. I can pretty much be anywhere with a decent airport. Uh, My husband's advising work is pretty flexible. So we didn't need to be living in such a high-cost city, right? Very different from when we both had jobs that were there. Central location was actually something on our list. I do a ton of work uh, on the coasts. And so going from West Coast to East Coast is hard because you have, you know, the day of travel time to get there and then the time zone change, a little bit tough. Uh, So Midwestern locations actually quite attractive from that standpoint. Good schools for the kids, right? Our oldest, Avery, entered into kindergarten this year, uh, the first year of real school, so that becomes important. And then I also just had this idea of having free-range kids. Uh, You know, in San Francisco, I knew where my kids were at all time because they were attached to my hands. (laughs) I would never be uh, walking down a city street without that for fear of them running into traffic or something. But this idea of being somewhere where that doesn't have to be the case, right, where there's space and it's safe and kids can roam free. I think there's a ton of learning and exploration uh, that happens in a really good way when that's the case. So we basically listed all of these things and then started looking at how various cities stacked up. And it was an iterative process where, you know, we'd add a city to the list, we'd remove another. Uh, Seattle was on there for me for a while, but then we realized, nah, it's hard from a travel standpoint. 
Boulder, Austin. We kept reading articles and knew sort of tangentially uh, people moving to those places. And then we thought about it, and we don't actually know anybody in those places. So that's not ideal from a social circle standpoint. Uh, Chicago was often on the list. Uh, but then we kept coming back to Milwaukee. Right? When we stack it up next to our needs, my husband grew up here. His whole side of the family is still here. So we have that piece. Uh, lower cost, more space, free-range kids, good schools, central location. Uh, so here we are a couple months later, and uh, everything is going well so far. So going back to the initial question, is this the right place for us? I, I don't know. I don't think there is such a thing as a single right place. But this certainly seems to be working for us so far, given our needs at this point. And here's where I'll try to pivot to making this relevant for data visualization. Is there a single right graph? How do we choose the right graph? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Is there a right graph? Well, the short answer is no. Any data can be graphed countless different ways. So then maybe the better question is, how do you choose a good graph or an effective graph? And so today I want to talk about that, and I'm going to split our time up into three main topics. First, graphing for exploration and understanding. Secondly, graphing for communicating. And then thirdly, I'll talk about some tools for when it comes to this question, what sort of graphs should we be looking at in the first place? i give you some tools that you can use that may help drive some of that decision-making process. So first, graphing for exploration and understanding. So taking data and making it visual is one way to do that exploratory process, right? Where we look at data one way and we look at it another way and another way and iterating through these different views, right? Because each different view allows you to more or less see different things. And so by graphing our data in multiple different ways, it can allow us to make different insights and actually see things differently. So the way I analyze data today actually looks quite a lot different than it did historically, but I think this is actually probably more a function of my job today than anything else. Right? Historically, it was big data sets and understanding how do we aggregate and disaggregate and you know, running correlations to try to understand underlying relationships, um, being able to make sense of the data, combining it in different ways, looking at it through different lenses. And I don't do as much of that today, so I'll keep this part of the conversation relatively short. The way I analyze today is very different because clients come to me with data that's already been aggregated. Usually it's their example graphs and example slides. And so then it's a different sort of challenge where I take the data from that and it's really about visualizing it in different ways and you know, trying to look at a line graph or bar chart or what happens if we plot the change or is there seasonality? Can we um, you know, run everything from January to December and look at year over years, or are there interesting things that come out? And one of the, the things that is striking, I think, in doing this is that there are insights that 
you don't see at all with some of the views of the data. That when you flip it on its head or look at it in a different way or even just focus on a different piece sometimes, there are sometimes incredible insights that were missed or where attention wasn't drawn to it the first time around. And so for me, when it comes to graphing data for this exploration, this exploratory part of the process, it really means allowing yourself time and being able to iterate uh, pretty quickly, uh, if possible, through these different views. Zan Armstrong uh, saw a note that she did a talk, it was last week or the week before, at the University of Washington that was focusing on uh, graphing data to uh, as a tool for exploring it. I, I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but I'm super interested to do so, and I will hunt it down and provide a link here for those who would be interested in more on that side of things as well. I believe she's talking about specific visualizations that can be useful in that exploratory part of the process. And I think when it comes for tools here, use whatever you can, whatever you are comfortable in that makes your process as efficient as possible. I think it's also important to recognize as you're looking through different views of the data that the view that you use to create that moment of understanding or identify an interesting insight may not be the same view that's going to help you communicate that same insight to your audience. So let's actually shift to graphing for communicating. Uh, and I know that was only a little bit of time on graphing for exploration. Mostly just wanted to uh, point out that there is certainly a use case for visualizing data as part of our exploratory process. But then again, with this caveat that I don't actually do a lot of that today. So I'll point you to some other resources there. Graphing for communicating. So for me, the right graph or uh, let's say an effective graph when it comes to explanatory, right? You have something specific you want to communicate to your audience. The right graph creates this magical aha moment of understanding in our audience. And when it comes to creating that, there are benefits to using graphs with which our audience is already familiar. Right? That's why I'm a big advocate of line graphs and bar charts. It's because our audience is familiar with these. They already know how to read them, which means we're not introducing a learning curve when it comes to getting the information across. And there's something that happens, I think, when we use a graph that is less uh, known or less familiar to our audience, which is basically we're introducing a hurdle that we have to get them over. We either have to get them to listen to us long enough to know how to read the graph if we're, in, uh, if we're going over it with them in a live setting, or we have to get them to want to stick with the graph long enough on their own to be able to make sense of it. And so then you want to consider, you know, how much of my audience's brain power do I want them to need to use to read the graph? Or how much time do I want to have to spend teaching them about how to read the graph versus focusing on the data or the insight that the graph lets us see? And actually, a couple interesting recent workshop examples here. Using less familiar graphs and with uh, sort of mixed reactions to them, which I always think it's uh, very interesting when some people prefer something and other people don't. There's actually one exercise that I do commonly where we look at the same data graphed a number of different ways. There's a pair of pie charts, there's a standard bar chart, a diverging bar chart, and a slope graph. 
and have everybody first uh, look through on their own and then discuss with a partner for each of these views. What do they like? And what are some of the limitations? And one of the bits of interesting conversation we have here and where I see there being very different views is on diverging bar charts, where if you imagine a horizontal bar chart, we have some bars going to the left and some bars going to the right. And now I find some people find this super confusing and uh, don't want to use this graph. Other people find it confusing at first, but then spend enough time with it to realize, oh, actually, I can see some really interesting things when I graph this data in this way. In the particular example, we're looking at survey data over time. And then there are other people who like it immediately. They're maybe already familiar with it or have seen data graphed that way or use them themselves uh, and tend to be drawn to it. And so we always do a little vote and, and the, the feelings are split. So it's interesting for me how the same data graphed in a certain way, some people are going to be drawn to it and other people may not, right? Which, which complicates this question of how do we then choose an effective visual. And I'll come back to that, but actually just first another recent workshop example. Uh, this was a client workshop. We were looking at, this was one of their examples, we were looking at some diversity data for a specific program that they were hiring for. And the original visual had a number of different tables showing this data, and it was sliced and diced by a ton of different stuff. And so part of the challenge with the data just in general was trying to figure out how it all related together because it was presented separately, and you could tell there were things in common across the tables, but it wasn't really clear how to connect things. And so we looked at a couple different makeovers in that case. One was another tabular view where we just pulled it all into a single table, and then we were thoughtful in how we ordered the data in it, clear titles and super categories around it so that it was very clear, the breakdown for line of business and then the breakdown uh, by geography and so forth. Another view we did was using a square area graph or a waffle chart where we basically had, you know, imagine there's 200 hires into this program and I'm just making up numbers at this point. So you've got a square that's made up of 200 tiny squares. And then now you could show if you were in a live setting, you could highlight half of that and say, okay, well, half of the hires were male. And then within that, you could highlight 40% of those. Okay, 40% of those were diversity male hires. And then you could flip over to the female side and do similar sort of highlighting piece by piece there. And then for the final view, we pulled it all together into what ended up being uh, three different square area graphs, right? So by line of business, by geography, and some other measure. And uh, did a vote at the end in, in these groups, uh, you know, we did this twice of 30 people. It was really evenly split between the people who preferred the table view and those who preferred the square area. And people are pretty um, adamant, I think, as well, when they have preference for a certain visual type. So then I think part of the question in how do we show data in a way that's going to be effective is how, how are we actually going to be communicating it, right? Are we there to walk them through or do this sort of building piece by piece that can make a less familiar visualization feel more accessible? Or is it something that we're sending off and our audience is consuming it on their own? And so maybe then we choose something that's more familiar so that we don't put part of our audience off uh, with a graph form that they may not be comfortable with or be willing to spend the time with in order to get to know it. So long story short, just be aware when you are using something less familiar for your audience that you're introducing this hurdle. 
Now, it doesn't mean not to do it, right? I think the reasons or the scenario in which I would recommend using something different or unfamiliar is if looking at the data that way actually allows you to see something that you can't see other ways or focus on an insight that's otherwise difficult to ascertain. But it's this trade-off, right, of how, how much do you want to spend teaching your audience how to read something versus the value then that you're going to get out of them be, being able to take it in in a way that is accessible. You know, that said, I think there's certainly an interesting area when it comes to graphical literacy and that there are times where we maybe should push our audience to get comfortable and learn something new. And actually, Elijah Meeks has a little bit on this uh, in his What Charts Do series, where he talks about visual literacy, right? this idea that every graph was a new graph at some point. There was a time before there was a line graph, and then there was a line graph, and we learned how to read it. And that actually learning how to read more graphs makes it easier to then learn how to read more graphs right? and create different views that might allow us to see something new. So don't shy away from using new things, but be aware of this hurdle. And when you want to really just jump to the data, then you want to think and what the data shows you. Then you want to think about what are the types of graphs that my audience is going to be comfortable with and, and how do I make that all work together, if you will. And when it comes to figuring out, well, how do I actually do that though, right? What graph is going to work for what I want my audience to see? It is back to this iterating process and looking at things one way and looking at it another way. There's certainly pattern recognition that happens over time where you do this a bunch of times and you get faster at it or you get maybe more efficient in picking views that are going to let you see different things. But there's always the case, right? Well, I'll look at data and be like, oh, of course, this is going to be a line graph. That's, that's going to be the way to get this across. And then you plot the line graph, and it looks like a spaghetti graph, right? All the lines are crisscrossing. It's as if I took a handful of uncooked spaghetti, and I threw it on the ground. And that's hard. And so then being willing to go back to the drawing board and flip things on its head and turn it around until you're able to come up with something sensible is important. Going back to this idea of, you know, how do you know, because in a business setting, you won't normally take a vote of, you know, which graph do people like better. But there are signals when something isn't working. There's a moment before people really uh, sort of censor their facial responses uh, that can be good cues. If you're seeing any sort of furrowed brows or scrunched up faces, wrinkled noses, it's usually just a microsecond of, you know, you put your graph in front of somebody or you put your graph up on the screen or your slide up on the screen and you see a little bit of, oh, I'm not sure what I'm looking at. You know, these are micro cues that something may not be working. And then you want to think about how do you learn from that? And one of the pieces of advice that I give often is when you're graphing data and you're not sure whether it's working, show it to someone else. Have them talk you through their thought process, what they pay attention to, what questions they ask, uh, what observations they make can be really useful for figuring out whether the visual you've created is serving its intended purpose, or if it isn't, give you pointers on where to concentrate your iterations. Also, just take note of how you're having to talk through the graph and how much time you're spending talking about how to read the graph versus being able to jump to the data and the insights. I can think of an example uh, back in banking. This was when I was working in fraud management. In fraud management, there are know, eight life cycle stages. You, know, you can mitigate fraud, you can detect it, you can deter it. And I thought for the longest time that the best graph, right, the right graph for this would be the spider web, 
uh, radar chart where you've got these eight different axes. I could plot on them some measure of where we were when it came to controls in these different places, where we wanted to be. We could look at overlap. We could look at the different shape across our different portfolios. And I spent so much time trying to convince my audience that this was the right way to look at this. And we'd spend a ton of time every time I was giving an update just talking about how to read these graphs. And it was the point where I made a graph to show how to read the graph that I finally recognized, you know what, this isn't working. And it's actually not them, it's me. In that case, doing a little bit of iterating and locking myself in a room with a whiteboard and being able to just sketch without committing to a view, uh, was able to realize that actually side-by-side horizontal bars uh, make for a much easier comparison for the things that I want my audience to compare than this spider web uh, radar graph was doing. And that's one thing to keep in mind is what do you want to enable your audience to do with the data that you're showing? And then try to find a graph that's going to make this easy. Right? If you want your audience to compare something, you want to typically put the things that you want them to compare as physically close together as you can and align them to a common baseline to make that comparison easy. And our eyes are pretty good at comparing relative lengths, right? relative bars, for example, particularly when they're aligned by something common, a common baseline. We have a harder time with areas uh, or lines are very great for being able to show gaps or differences between different lines. But it's really back to this idea of there isn't a single right graph, right? Any data can be graphed a ton of different ways. But by being clear on what we want our graph to allow our audience to do, it allows us to make smart decisions, both when it comes to the type of graph to be showing in the first place, as well as some of these other design considerations of where and how might we use color sparingly, or what words do we put around our graph to make it accessible and make the point clear. So those are some thoughts on choosing a good graph for an effective graph, I should say, for communicating. Let's have a short discussion on tools. So there are a ton of different uh, options out there when it comes to tools that will help you choose a right graph or that will help you see different graphs in order to be able to start assessing where you might start or what views might work. I'm just going to list off a few of them here and I'll make sure to link to all of these in the show notes. Juice Analytics has a chart chooser. Anne Emery has a chart choosing tool within her essentials package. John Schwabish has actually a poster and playing cards <laughs> that are sort of fun. Um, it's part of what's he called the graphic continuum. So it's a way, I think, both to get familiar with different types of graphs, uh, especially if you have kids or uh, want to develop familiarity uh, with some different views. Andy Kirk, who does visualizing data, he has a chart maker directory. This one's nice because it crosses uh, different graphs by different tools. You can see which tools will allow you to easily create different sorts of visuals. And then within each, it also links to many external examples. So it's a nice place to be able to browse if you're ever feeling stuck. Use these if they're helpful. Uh, Over time, you'll develop a sense of, as we talked about, what sort of graph may work to more or lesser degree depending on 
what you want to get across your audience, what you want them to focus on, what you want to allow them to see in your data. One other tool I should mention, the Storytelling with Data Challenge, a monthly challenge that we do on the Storytelling with Data site, where it's typically a type of graph. Uh, you know, go out, get some data, and submit a, this month it was scatter plots, or we've done slope graphs and line graphs and bar charts. And uh, it's just a place for people to be able to share. And so we go through and collect those over the course of the month and then recap a post back. Um, there's a tab on the site. I'll make sure to link to that from the show notes. But it can be a nice place just to browse through to see you know, 88 versions of annotated line graphs and be able to see what design elements you like and what you might want to stand clear of when it comes to uh, applying to your own work. And when it comes back to this question of what graph is right, as we've talked about, there is no right graph. And I'll also say no graph is inherently good or evil. And I'll say this in spite of some of my controversial uh, talk titles in the past. Right? The pie chart is not evil. Nearly every graph has a perfect use case. The challenge is you steer too far from that and they can become really confusing really quickly. And there certainly is a use case for less common graphs. Just be aware of the hurdle that you introduce when you're using something less common. So when it comes to how do you choose the right graph, consider what you need to be able to do with it. And give yourself time and patience to iterate through various views to find one that will meet your needs. Let's shift next to reader Q&A. Jennifer from Notre Dame writes, I had an issue come up in class today that I wanted to get your input on. I've always been told that starting graphs at zero is a must. Not doing so distorts the data. Do you have any exceptions to this rule? So this is one that I've answered before and I talk about in probably nearly every workshop that I teach, but I think there's no amount of repetition that's bad here, which is the rule is bar charts must have a zero baseline. And that's because of the way that we compare the endpoints of the bars relative to each other and relative to the axis. So actually need the full bar there in order to make that an accurate visual comparison. There are no exceptions to this that I am aware of. Where exceptions come in is when you're talking about other graph types. So if we think of points in the case of a scatter plot or a dot plot or lines in the case of a line graph, we're focusing more on the relative positions of the points in space and in the case of a line graph, the relative slopes of the lines that connect those positions. And mathematically, as we zoom, the relative slopes and positions remain constant. Uh, so you can get away with starting a line graph or a scatter plot at something other than zero. You just want to be careful and make sure you're taking context into account, right? And that you're not overzooming and making minor changes or differences feel like a really big thing. Uh, but sometimes minor changes or differences are a really big thing. And so when you need to be able to zoom in and see that, points or lines are what will allow you to do so. Mark asks, should I keep the axis on my graph or label my data directly? This is a common question that we deal with pretty much any time we show data for explanatory purposes. 
And the thing that I always point people to think about when making this decision is what level of specificity does your audience need to have with the numeric values, right? If those specific numbers are important, if it's n important to know that we went from, you know, exactly 76% uh, response rate, let's say, to 82 response rate, then you want to put those directly on the graph. And if you're labeling every point, then you can get rid of the axis because at that point it's redundant information. If, on the other hand, you'd rather your audience focuses on the general shape of the data or relationships between different data series, then you usually don't want to clutter the graph with all of the numbers and instead can leave that free and preserve your axis off to the side so that you have that there uh, for people to use as reference. And then sometimes there can be useful combinations of these, right? As we talked about, you don't usually need to have the axis and every data point labeled, but there might be some data points that are more important than others. So maybe you label just the peak and just the uh, lowest point, or oftentimes we're looking at data over time. And so then the most recent point is going to be the most important. So I'll often do views where I preserve the y-axis there, but then I put a data marker and a data label on the most recent point over on the right-hand side of the graph, which does a couple of things. It makes it so your audience can easily know what the actual data point was for the most recent data point, which is probably the most relevant. But it also works to get our attention more quickly out to the right-hand side of the graph, which if that's the more relevant uh, piece, then, then that can make sense. Luke asks, how do I know when I'm done? Which seems like a really simple question, uh, but it's a hard one to answer. And I think the question applies whether you're talking about a graph or a presentation or, you know, even the, in the exploratory part of the process, how do you know when you're done? And it depends. It depends how important is the thing, right? Do you need to take it all the way to 100% or is it a case where putting in 80% of the effort is going to get you most of the way there? And there are trade-offs, right, with both of those things. Um, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Now, we'll talk about this a lot in workshops, right? Because we spend a day going through all these different lessons. And when you step back and think about it, it can be a little overwhelming if these aren't things that you've been routinely doing of like, whoa, all of this takes time and it takes a lot of time to do and it takes even more time to do well. And so I'm a big advocate, you know, th this doesn't mean you take a workshop or you read a book and now you have to do all of those things every time you touch data, right? You'd never get anything done if that were the case. It's about being strategic about when and how we apply the different tools and tips. And so sometimes it can be as easy as, you know what, I'm going to throw it in a graph and it may not be the perfect graph, but I can use some color and I can put some words about around it to make it clear to my audience where they should focus and what they should take away. Other times it might make sense to build out a full data story where you lead your audience through and you have many different views progressing through the data. And so which of those or, you know, what combination thereof is going to make sense really depends on the scenario. Who's your audience? How important is the thing that they're, you're communicating to them? And how do, you, how do you make all that work together given time constraints and tool constraints and, you know, all the other stuff that we talk about here? Also, a, a good test can be, you know, if you think you're done or if you're not sure where you might focus the rest of your energy is create your visual or your presentation, your graph, put it in front of someone else, right? Back to this idea of getting feedback from someone else, uh, being able to see things through someone else's eyes in a way that can help you assess whether what you've put together is doing what you need it to or if you need to do more.
I will also say that in a case where you are presenting the information, it's in a meeting or a presentation, uh, if you feel time constrained or especially as you get up to uh, it being close in time, shift the time you're spending on the content, the materials, to the time you're spending on yourself as the presenter. So we've all seen this scenario where a good presenter can overcome mediocre materials. But the opposite isn't true. You can have the most beautiful data visualization in the world, in the most beautiful deck in the world. And if you can't talk through that in a way that's going to get your audience's attention and build your credibility and you know, drive them towards the action you need, then that's not going to work. So uh, especially as you get close to whatever the due date is in a case where it's something you need to talk through, focus on you and get comfortable talking through that content. Let the slides or let the material be done, but practice how you're going to talk through it in a way that's going to be effective for your audience. Anticipate the ways that it could go off the rails and uh, think about how you can be prepared to deal with that. Thanks very much to those who've submitted questions. If you have a question for me, you can email it to askcole at storytellingwithdata.com for potential future inclusion here. Before we wrap, a couple of quick updates. Uh, I've just announced my Q1 2019 public workshop schedule. Uh, planned sessions in London, Charlotte, North Carolina, San Francisco, and I will be making my very first trip ever down under with stops in Auckland, New Zealand, Melbourne, and Sydney in Australia. There are also a few spots left in the November London workshop. Uh, full details are at storytellingwithdata.com slash public dash workshops. I'll link to that in the show notes as well. More than 40 people shared scatter plots as part of the October Storytelling with Data Challenge. We're working on the recap post now and should have that up soon. November Challenge will run from November 1st through 8th. So stay tuned for that opportunity to flex your data viz skills. And I'm hopefully going to be getting back to a more regular podcasting schedule. So if you have ideas on topics you'd like to hear me talk about, send a note to feedback at storytellingwithdata.com. I welcome your feedback on all aspects of the podcast there. And with that, be sure to follow at storywithdata on Twitter and Instagram. Check out all of the great resources on the blog at storytellingwithdata.com. Thanks for listening.